Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns. To provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Brandon Ballinger has a unique quality of attention, one that is not constrained by traditional distinctions between art and science and working and living. He wants to share that capacity to witness, to liberate everyone's imagination of what this world can be, a world that we are of rather than just in. This ecological consciousness informs his work as a visual artist, biologist, and environmental educator. Ballinger creates transdisciplinary artworks inspired from his ecological field and laboratory research. His work swaps out shock and didactic show and tell for visual drama, textured, moral thinking, and muscular hope. In 2014, he received his PhD in transdisciplinary art and biology, a singular kind of degree that we will talk about, from Plymouth University in the UK. Much of his adult life has been spent in New York City in Louisiana, and his artwork has been exhibited throughout the US and internationally in more than 20 countries. From 2016 to 2018, he was a postdoctoral research associate at the Museum of Natural Science at Louisiana State University, studying the impact of ecology on the ecology of the Gulf of Mexico after the 2010 oil spill. His project, Crude Life Portable Museum, a citizen art and science investigation of Gulf of Mexico biodiversity after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, is profoundly affecting and has been extended to examine the species missing from the Gulf since the oil spill. In 2020, he was named to the GRIST's 50 Emerging Environmental Leaders. In 2021, he was awarded the illustrious Guggenheim Fellowship. His life, as in his art and scientific research, is a model of crossing and dissolving boundaries. After years in New York, he and his family decided to make Arnoldville, Louisiana, their home. Brandon, his wife, Aurora and children Victor and Lilith began Atelier de la Nature, a South Louisiana area eco-educational campus and nature reserve that inspires people to steward the nature in their own backyards and learn how collectively we can protect these natural gifts for future generations. Brandon is a voice we desperately need amidst our ecological crises and a model of the attitudes and philosophy that might ignite the change. His life is a beacon for increased understanding of localized environmental problems with an overall awareness that each of us as individuals has an impact and can make a difference in our global environment. It is a distinct pleasure to have Brandon on Origins to begin to talk about how he has navigated to unexplored places physically and cognitively and become comfortable there and to share the breadcrumb trail of brilliant work that marks his trajectory. Brandon, thank you for joining us today on Origins. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin, as I do so many of my conversations, but with a slight twist. You're often drawn out as a biologist and an artist, but I want to draw you out as a philosopher, someone trying to change consciousness in the way we imagine our world. So I'm curious how you would begin to trace your own path toward an ecological perspective. It's one that is at once scientific and spiritual. Are these present somehow in your childhood? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I think that that's really the point. I, even to, even as an adult now, I, I sometimes don't view myself as an artist or a biologist. I just view myself as a human being, being alive at a particularly mom, uh, stressful moment in history, um, considering the loss of biodiversity and changes to climate, and, and just try to see myself as, as an individual who creatively uh, tries to work on strategies to to fix some of these challenges, but but yes, uh, it all started for me as a, as a kid growing up in the woods in Central Ohio and East Tennessee. Um, I 
loved animals from an early age, especially uh, ectothermic vertebrates. Those are critters that are uh, ectothermic, cold-blooded, so reptiles and amphibians and fishes, and um, maintained a, really a, a laboratory at my parents' home, uh, so much so that in my room, they moved me to the basement. I had so many aquariums, they were worried the, the um, floor would fall through. <laughs> I literally, yeah, I just, I, I was just always fascinated. So what I would do is I, I go out collecting in the woods or streams or ponds and then bring everything back, um, set up these aquarium, terrarium, and then really got fascinated by the way that those organisms worked in those artificial environments and what it took to kind of keep those animals alive and then the way that they related to one another and that environment. Um, as it was kind of, you know, learning the science behind that, um, I was also doing drawings, so constantly kind of making portraits of the of the animals that I, I was studying, and then um, later it just kind of got more in depth. I was breeding uh, electric fish, <laughs> electric eels, trying to breed electric eels as a teenager, and and electric fish from South America, and just got more and more fascinated with the life um, around me, and and really try still today to do artworks and, and science projects that are open to the public and um, to try to get other people inspired by the nature that's all around us. I, I wanna get kind of into, maybe introduce upfront, how you investigate these things as a scientist now. Uh, this is gonna lead into a lot of the work you've done as an artist, but there are a few areas that I found in, you're, you work in, and I, and I hope you can maybe explain them. And the first one is biodiversity. And that's kind of a through line of a lot of your work. And I wonder how you might introduce your thinking about biodiversity. Definitely as, as, as just a human being being alive at this moment in history. And that started again, um, as I was growing up, um, by the time I got to high school, the first reports of uh, missing amphibians and amphibian declines started to show up at international um, herpetological conferences. So that was in the, the late 80s and early 90s. So I got really captivated by what that means, why amphibians were disappearing, and in some cases, really, really rapidly. And I guess that started to lead me down this path where I became more aware of the research that was being done into defining biodiversity. And, and, and now, you know, Many years later, we just see that um, so much loss of life, so much loss of biodiversity happening all over the world and, and what kind of impact that can have to, to ecosystems and eventually us, um, even though it is already having impacts to our species. Um, so just from a, from a science standpoint, I did my, my graduate and PhD work on amphibians, uh, specifically on uh, Anuran development. So those are those are tailless amphibians. Those are frogs and toads. And I was really interested in the, the potential impact that agricultural landscapes could have on uh, limb development in frogs and toads. And so that's what I, I did my, um, my uh, part of my PhD work looking in farm fields in Middle England and part of my work um, in farm fields in Southern Quebec and comparing uh, health of amphibians in agricultural landscapes versus more natural landscapes, those um, in protected areas where agrochemicals and, and you know, kind of pesticides were, would be less of a stressor. And what I found is a direct correlation between um, limb deformities increasing in, in farm ponds versus more natural areas, but not necessarily for the reasons that we would have thought. Uh, initially, I was really looking at um, chemicals themselves that could cause like teratological responses or malformations um, in the development of the frogs. And I could never pinpoint any of those. Sure enough, there's tons of pesticides and agrochemicals in, in those farm pond waters, but we couldn't find anything that would directly correlate to the types of deformities that are found in the ponds that could generate those types of deformities. Instead, um, during a field trip, and, and just to backtrack a little bit, most, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the work I do, um, a lot of the field work, I try to involve the public. So kind of citizen science or what I like to call participatory biology, 
So on one of these uh, field surveys uh, in Yorkshire, England, uh, there was a group of us and we noticed that some of the, the tadpoles were swimming by. This was a, a, a farm pond that had high levels of agrochemicals, but it had high levels of deformed little um, common toads, bufo bufo. And what we noticed is some of the tadpoles were swimming by with legs that had recently been chopped off. So little bloody stumps. What in the world is that? So kids started to notice it. Kids on the field trip and then I saw. So, um, but we also noticed as we were dip netting, these little creatures that look like the monster from Aliens. And sure enough, it turns out those little monsters are dragonfly larvae. And what the dragonfly larvae were doing they were sitting down kind of under a layer of sediment, capturing tadpoles, grabbing them, chewing on them for a little bit, not, not eating the whole thing, and chucking them back with a missing limb or a partial limb or, um, or, a, or some type of injury. So that's, uh, that was one of these interesting moments found with a whole group. And then we brought a bunch of the dragonfly larvae and a bunch of tadpoles back um, from different field sites and set up a series of experiments, uh, which in a laboratory that was also open to the public, so folks could come and see the research happening in real time. Um, and we discovered, sure enough, dragonfly nymphs sure, at least in our study, sure favor um, frog legs. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing is a lot of the, the attacks, uh, the majority of the attacks from the dragonfly larvae um, did not actually kill the tadpoles, but it maimed their limbs. and um, for those of you that know a little bit about the development in amphibians, um, amphibians are great at regenerating. So as a tadpole, they have genes that are still on, homeobox genes and other um, genes that uh, basically will help them regenerate to an extent. So what we found is based on the wound and the, the stage of development in the tadpole, you've got this whole range of what looked like, you know, um, malformations but in fact they're 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 just um partial um healing healing as much as the as the tadpole could do so they're deformities um so we were able to replicate and, and find a direct link between dragonfly larvae and deformed frogs at least in middle england and then kind of did the, the a similar project took the same methodology and applied it to anuran and dragonfly larvae populations in southern quebec and found very very similar if not identical results um, so the interesting thing there is, um, what does it mean? Why are there more deformed frogs and in farm ponds then? And so we just started to look at the food chains. And what we found is in agricultural ponds, uh, the food chains were less complex. There weren't as many players. Uh, in some cases, um, one of the things that in nature, in a, in a more natural uh, wetland environments, you'll have fishes that are eating some of those dragonfly larvae. But in some of the farm ponds, because of the, the agrochemicals and specifically nutrients, eutrophication in the farm ponds caused the ponds to turn bright green and then to eventually become eutrophic and form a dead zone. Um, by middle summer killing most of the fish. So what we found in, in the absence of fish in farm ponds meant there were more dragonfly larvae and the dragonfly larvae were becoming the kind of alpha predator, really, really impacting some of the farm ponds. So anyway, complicated long story to talk a little bit about the origins of my, of, of, of my frog work. <laughs> but just, it, it goes in when we're talking about biodiversity. I mean, this is one of the, one of the things, I mean, we had to not just study the systems inside of the, you know, the, the development of that organism, but actually take a step back and look at other players um, in their development. What does, what is that environment, uh, whether that's um, at a chemical level, level, whether that's temperature, whether it's other factors like the way the food chain changes as a result of human activity. Um, so yeah, I think that's, um, that was a that was a really interesting discovery, and another really neat thing that happened is by working with some of the farmers in southern Quebec, um, you know, they gave us access to to study their ponds when they found out that there were high levels of deformed frogs. 
one of them was really concerned and wondered what we could do. So we tried an experiment where instead of um, farming right to the edge of the pond, he left a buffer zone. It was only about three meters, um, roughly about 10 feet where he didn't farm. He just let it, he just let it go to prairie, let it go to, to plants. And sure enough, uh, within a season, we saw a drop. The water quality in the pond was better. That little buffer zone helped to filter some of the, the nutrients from going into the pond and probably other chemicals too. And, and in, in, you know, in less than a year, we saw, uh, or in, in a given season, we saw the frog deformity ratio decrease after that little buffer zone was done. So that was just a matter of communication. And, and working with the farmer and him being open to the idea of working with scientists to try to help the health of the, the frogs that occupy his farm pond. So I love stories like that of, of citizen, not just citizen science, but citizens getting involved to kind of help biodiversity. Thank you. I, there are so many threads there that I, I would like to go into. I, I'm gonna come back to this idea of how participatory and co-creative your work is because I think it's very important. And then also this, this last component that you talked about, which makes me think about how to curate and how to allow our commons spaces to flourish. You know, there's this, there's this idea that Garrett Hardin talked about and wrote about in, in the 1960s about the tragedy of the commons, how our common spaces end up in these areas where they're overused and they, they collapse essentially. And, and your work is certainly getting to that. But before I do, I, I want to relate to the, a few other ideas I think are, are present in your scientific work and that I think lead into your artistic work as well, because the different way of seeing that the artistic sensibility brings um, is required for doing some of these things. And that's two terms, anti-form, which is a term you've used. Uh, which on this podcast, we've talked about antidisciplinary being as these spaces inherently between the disciplines or these liminal spaces. And, and then the second one that's related to that is complexity. And I think it's very difficult or impossible to really understand biology or ecology without this concept of complexity. And, and I wonder how you might begin to describe what those mean in your work and where those, where your, kind of your, the origins of your interest in those terms and those concepts uh, comes from? Sure. I think um, part of it is trying to, you know, there's multiple roles here. I mean, I wear different hats depending on what I'm doing. When I'm working in the lab and I've got to be um, analytical and I'm replicating sets of experiments to understand um, just the data, um, you know, there's that side. There's that, that side which has to remain, um, you know, as detached as possible as um, kind of controlling the scenarios as much as possible and, and also going to the most minimal question possible to ask for that specific little tidbit of what I need to understand. The great flip side to that is um, through the art creation and through the environmental education, I'm able to open up laboratory spaces and unpack and ask these complicated questions, even about the nature of some of the, the way that research is conducted especially animal research, um, you know, in environments where if you're leaving this open to the public, where a good number of folks um, might have issues with doing any kind of research with live animals. Um, but on that, uh, an overarching or an umbrella for that approach is this idea of generating discourse and discussion and, and talking about what the disciplines do, where they, you know, how far they can go. Um, and vice versa. So if you've got um, a project that you know you need to produce as science, you're writing a manuscript. But aspects of that same research can then be made into art. Um, you know, as exactly what happened with some of the deformed um, frog work I was doing, I created this whole series of of portraits of cleared and stained deformed frogs with the intention of. of really trying to uh, get people to have an emotional response when seeing the, the portraits. Um, to give you an idea of what, what I'm saying, you can go to my website and check it out. Um, the series is called Mal Amp, um, and it's still ongoing. I'm still working on it. Um, but the idea was I would 
find a subset of the deformed frogs in nature um, do this process called clearing and staining, where I'm literally clearing away soft tissues um, using trypsin and digestive enzymes and eventually glycerin, uh, and then staining bone and cartilage. So the cartilage is stained blue and the bone calcified tissue is stained red. It's a it's not a technique I invented by any means. It's a technique that was invented, I think, in the 19th century. Um, but aesthetically, it's incredibly compelling. And then from the science side, um, the reason I did that is to try to understand at what point in development the deformity started to happen at. So it, it helped with clues. But as I said, aesthetically, they're just beautiful. I mean, they're these vibrant uh, shades of red and blue. And then by taking the deformed frogs and kind of showing these vibrant skeletons as artworks, they didn't, they weren't shocking anymore. They didn't look um, like monsters, which is one of the things that I really wanted to avoid, um, which was trial and error. The first time that I, I started to exhibit deformed frog work, um, I made some large blowups of just photographs of the deformed frogs and they were just horrifying. They're really scary. And that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to create monsters or push people away. It was the opposite. I wanted people to get involved and engaged. And so through trial and error, um, over the years, I developed that technique where photograph the cleared and stained specimens or scan them. And then I had them printed um, as iris prints. So it's watercolor ink on watercolor paper. So they have a feeling of a 19th century watercolor, a bit like looking at um, a John James Audubon. Um, and then they were printed at a scale so that they're roughly the size of a human toddler. Um, so the, the goal there was to induce empathy instead of fear. So also trial and error. I went from making really large ones which looked like monsters to really tiny ones. Um, and then people just kind of walked by them. Somehow I realized that psychologically, I think we need something, we needed something at, a, at a, an almost human scale, at a childlike scale. And really the feeling is when you look at those photographs, um, you almost get the sense that you wanna to try to pick them up. And then there's this push and pull between the beauty of the colors, the scale, but also the, the message about disappearing frogs, disappearing biodiversity. And I found that push and pull um, something that worked really well for that body of work. Um, and I've tried to re replicate it in other bodies of work too. That kind of need to seduce the viewer visually while telling them this, this complicated science story. And this story about the, the necessity for, you know, environmental actions to try to protect these species. There, it's an absolutely stunning exhibit, and I will certainly link to that in the show notes. And, and I want to come back as well to this this idea of how you actually create empathy over fear, and I think that that requires this artistic sensibility. And and you seem to move seamlessly between the scientific and artistic sensibilities. You even have this transdisciplinary PhD, uh, which is a very unique program. It, it seems like. And you found maybe some consilient way of being in which these two sensibilities are harmoniously together. What have you learned maybe through this PhD and, and beyond about moving between those two sensibilities that, that might expand our imagination? Sure. Um, well, I think one of the first things is to, to backtrack a little bit and, and, and to, to get rid of this notion of the, the idea that we are either or, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we, we've so often been told and been taught that we're either right-brained or left-brained, we're poetic or we're analytical. That's really not the case for both. And that's one of the beauties of, of being a human being is the fact that we approach the world scientifically and analytically every day of our lives, but we also approach it emotionally and anesthetically and poetically. And that's that that duality in us, that complexity in us is just natural. So to me, art and science are, are just very complementary. I don't see them as the same thing, but they're definitely tools to just, you know, they're part of what it means to be human, to understand the, the world outside of us, inside of us, and, you know, trying to figure out where we fit in this uh, galaxy, in this larger universe. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think what, for me, one of the 
the the challenges has been um, you know pragmatically how do you do both and and what I constantly and continue to struggle with is how do I how do I segment time and energy to to be able to be doing real science um, but also taking the time to reflect on that real science and those experiences of being in ecosystems um, through the creation of art and so it's kind of like an ongoing <laughs> process but honestly, um, as I'm doing the science, I get inspired to, to create art. And when I'm making the art, it inspires me to think about different perspectives with the research, with the science research. So again, it's complementary. Um, and I think uh, as far as that PhD program I was in, unfortunately that, that node no longer exists. It was a Zurich node called Z-node and the, the foundation of that PhD program was it had to be not from a single discipline, whether it was robotics or whether it was video games and physics or robotics and dance, it had to somehow involve the arts or culture, but it also had to come from another side, either technology, um, physics, um, science. So it had to be complementary. In my case, it was, it was, um, you know, I was really interested in, um, of course, the, the deformed frog science, but then I, I didn't delve into the art as much from a philosophical standpoint as a pragmatic standpoint. I, I tried to monitor audience uh, response to um, the artworks that I was creating, what, they, what their takeaway was from their experience from those artworks. And then likewise, uh, through these participatory biology programs, what what that was like. What was it like to participate, to find these deformed frogs, to help, um, you know, collect data? Um, what was it like to physically, like, you know, um, be involved with real research? Um, so those were some of the questions I was asking through my, through my dissertation. And, and I found it fascinating the way that, um, you know, there was, there was lots of qualifiable data that just demonstrated that people really not so much learn from the art or those experiences. So learning was a was a was a uh, was a key component, but how they described just starting to have an emotional connection, an awareness, um, a curiosity, uh, a feeling for the the encountered species, and learning more that way, but also feeling more. And I think if we're talking about conservation, we 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 can't. You know, we don't conserve out of a sense of quantitative data. We 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 conserve. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to protect um, ecosystems and species, but we need to do that through a, an individual connection to that space or that species. And I think that's um, that's really an important, effective means for for getting folks inspired to to protect the nature in their backyard and their surrounding communities and and larger ecosystems and environments. I'm curious when this um, this possibility of approaching the world as, you know, through analytic lens and aesthetic lens and emotional and poetic lenses, when that became real for you, what was, was there someone you learned from, someone who, who made this real, brought this into the world, or maybe an, maybe some origin, origin of the ideas of one of your exhibits? I'm thinking maybe the the ghosts of the Gulf. Where, where do you trace that kind of the, the light clicking on for you that these things are complementary and, and could be brought together? As an artist and a volunteer for the USGS studying frogs before I went for, for the science degree, I ended up in the laboratory of a fellow named Stan Sessions at Hartwick College, who later became a, a good friend and long-term collaborator and um, PhD advisor. And Stan uh, was a scientist, um, you know, developmental biologist. And Stan really saw that I had this, you know, not only the interest in, in kind of drawing and, and, and making art about some of the frogs, but he also realized um, how interested I was in the, the process of what was causing that. So he really kind of um, uh, mentored me in the way to, to try to start thinking about how I could be doing more of the actual 
of laboratory research and and the analytical side, and which is which is fun because Stan started off as an art major, um, as an undergrad, and so he ended up going the other route, and then um, we we still are friends and collaborate after all these years. So I, you know, it's a process. I think I just have have developed that over time. And as you mentioned, the Ghost of the Gulf project, that, that's that been ongoing really since the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And how, that, how that's kind of come about is I was working as a, as a herpetologist, as a, as, a, as a frog researcher, and then um, read about, uh, well, didn't read about, I, I saw um, the oil spill on television when I was in London. And I thought, oh my God, look at that, I, you know, here I am across the Atlantic watching this horrible oil spill at a place, the Gulf of Mexico, which is, you know, for those of us in North America, really it's our Amazon rainforest. It's, it's an incredibly dynamic, diverse environment. At any given time, there's, you know, upwards of 1,500 different species of fish. 78 of those are endemic fishes that are found nowhere else on the planet. And it's just homes to, home to tens of thousands of organisms. And so having Deepwater Horizon happen there, you know, right off the shelf of this incredibly rich delta in the Mississippi, this giant nursery, just just shocked me. I couldn't believe it. So as soon as I got back to the US, I, I came down, I volunteered to try to try to see how I could help and ended up meeting a lot of great people, becoming more and more inspired by the culture but also the natural history and the, the biodiversity in south louisiana and in the gulf of mexico and increasingly got more engaged and eventually my family and i moved down 2015 and i did a postdoc at lsu in the museum of natural science in the fish lab specifically looking at those endemic fishes in the gulf of mexico and trying to figure out potential impacts the oil spill had we're still after more than a decade trying to piece together the impact of that oil spill, the largest oil spill in human history, as far as we know, but also trying to understand the continued impacts of oil spills. The, the longest oil spill that is ongoing, it's called the Taylor Energy Spill, which started in years before Deepwater Horizon, and it, it contains, or it still continues today. So part of that postdoctoral work was looking at records. So I, I joined um, LSU as part of an interdisciplinary team and we went through um, museum records of endemic fishes collected prior to the oil spill and then after the oil spill. And what we found is a number of them were present between uh, 2000 and 2010 and then 14 species um, had gone quote unquote missing from museum records. So that was a paper we published five years after the spill, and we're working on the on the updated version now. There's even species that, interestingly, you know, were collected in the Gulf once prior to the spill and never seen again. So looking for what I call these ghosts of the Gulf. And so that the the current project I'm working on, I'm now an adjunct faculty at Tulane University. And Tulane, we have the largest preserved fish collection on the planet. And the idea here is basically we're looking at the way that fish are so good at adapting. Fish are by far the most successful group of animals with a backbone that have ever occupied our planet. They're found virtually all over the world and they're really, really great at adapting to changing ecosystems and environments. So trying to talk to folks from coastal Louisiana about what adaptation looks like and then make a parallel between how successful fishes are and then talking about the way that, how can our communities in coastal Louisiana adapt to these extreme changes that are happening so rapidly, uh, rapidly uh, whether it's sea level rise, whether it's land that's sinking, marshland loss, pre-storm frequency, as well as you know, hurricanes becoming stronger and being moving slower and talking about that, but also talking about like, how do we adapt to socioeconomic changes as the oil and gas industry is leaving our coast in some cases, you know, where, what, how are we gonna, what, what kind of employment are we looking at? How are we gonna sustain our populations economically? And then also talking about overfishing and, and changes to fisheries 
looking at ways maybe we can be finding new sources of protein, uh, other underutilized re, uh, species that are quite common. So that's a component, working in that, that fish collection and doing these fish drawing workshops, but also actually working with coastal communities south of Bell Chase in what's called Plaquemines Parish, which is south of New Orleans on the edge of the Mississippi, you know, basically it's the east and the west bank of the Mississippi Delta, uh, the Mississippi River and Delta, um, areas that historically uh, were you know, filled with marshlands, which increasingly now are bays. We're actually losing land uh, at the most rapid place on the planet is in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Land loss is the highest um, anywhere in the world. And we've got about 23,000 people living there. So working with those 23,000 people, the, the communities in Plaquemines Parish, to talk about adaptation, but also working with them in collaboration to go look for some of the missing Gulf fishes and to make this parallel between these missing species, these rare species, and then talking about how culturally our communities in South Louisiana are endangered. Folks are going to have to migrate. Folks are going to have to make serious changes. And these are distinct cultures. There are populations that live in the marshlands. There are no roads that, that get there. You have to take a boat to get to their homes. The Native American community in Barataria Bay like that. There's also Moatian, Vietnamese populations, Croatian, you know, and these folks, they've got distinct villages of free people of color, people that are not of Creole ancestry, but actually African-Americans that came as freed slaves and bought land. And now after decades and decades, most likely they're going to have to migrate from some of their land as well as Cajun Creole populations. And, and, and just what does that change look like? And as that change is happening, how do we retain a sense of that cultural vibrancy? You know, so these are folks that evolved or adapted to live off of these marshlands, off of the resources in the Gulf of Mexico. How, how do they persist? At the same time, how does the biodiversity they're so connected to, how does that persist? How is that gonna be changing? Um, so asking some of those questions in a way that's very participatory, non-confrontational, working with all of the schools in Plaquemines Parish, but also working with folks from the oil and gas industry, commercial fishermen, charter boat captains, uh, shrimpers, oyster folks. Your work, a brilliant part of that is what you're describing here. It's the cultural, the ethnographic approach. It's it's sitting with the communities being affected by this and, and centering that cultural aspect of this. I think it's extremely important. You know, your, your, your project, Searching for the Ghosts of the Gulf, challenges us to look at imperiled, deformed, and extinct, extinct species, to look at death and finality directly. And, and it's also understanding that the disappearance of species is more than just an impact to those life forms. It's as habitats and biodiversity disappear, so do the cultures that rely on them. And I think that's such an important aspect of what you do. And, and you are on the front lines in many ways of people and the world confronting climate crisis. And you do not only in your biological and ecological research and artwork, but in your life as well. You were doing work in, in biology and ecology in, in New York for years, and then you moved to Louisiana. And, and to me, that seems like a giving yourself over to culture, to a commitment to an ethnographic approach of meeting, situating yourself in and learning the culture. It's kind of giving yourself over to the truth that we are of the world and not merely in it. And I think there's a lot of lessons for this, for everyone who are wondering how do we navigate a world um, that's increasingly confronted with and unable to avoid uh, climate crisis effects. How has that been present in your moving to Louisiana and, and how has that changed your life? And, and that specifically, I'm interested in this atelier de, de la nature that you began with your family. Oh, absolutely. Well, at a certain point in, in New York, we just, uh, we just felt like we wanted to do more. We wanted to be, you know, have a positive, try to have a positive impact on communities that we felt, um, you know, would not only uh, <laughs> need some maybe alternative ideas, but also, um, you know, 
be so welcoming and, and, and feeling like we wanted to be at the front line to try to do what we could to help. And also um, there's an incredible amount of, of cultural diversity in South Louisiana. It's like, when you think of New York, it's like a, a mixing pot. But if you think of Louisiana, South Louisiana, it's a slow cooked gumbo of all these different cultures. And we are, as you said, at the front line of, of climate crisis. So the question is, how, how could we come here and, and you know, participate in that mode of positive adaptation? How can we help? So one of the things that um, we did is when we got here, we ended up buying a home which had nine acres of soybeans in the back. And so we immediately took out that monoculture and started to remediate the soil to bring it back to life. So we're about 40 miles from the coast. We, we bought this land, we started to remediate it. We planted over 1300 baby trees. We put in a wetland. Um, we've been planting this amazing mixture called Cajun Prairie, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. And, and, and really set it up as a, as a community nature reserve with trails so folks could come and walk and learn about this biodiversity and just get excited. I mean, the, 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 the nature in the Southeast, I mean, the, the, the species in the Southeast and Southern Louisiana, um, it's, it's incredible biodiversity, great bird migrations, great insects, great amphibians and reptiles. I mean, it's a special part of the planet. And so we wanted to do our part to, to protect that, but also not just um, you know, buy land that was already a forest, but actually recreate that as a symbol of something that an individuals can do. How individuals can take a positive environmental action, a positive action by recreating um, ecosystems that have been exploited. So on this farmland that's just been kind of coming back, um, over the past uh, six years, we've already encountered, we've done bio blitzes and encountered almost 200 species that have returned. It's incredible. So just a huge amount of biodiversity has returned so, so quickly. The amount of, so it's remarkable how, how life returns when you let it and how life wants to persist. And if you kind of just, just make the space for it, it's, it's doing things itself. So. We've set it up as this community nature reserve, but we also as this kind of eco-education outdoor campus where we hold festivals and uh, activity-based events. So we have these great festivals in the fall, like a Halloween art and nature festival where everything is activity-based. Everything is science and art and food and music and everything's free. Everybody can have the same experience. It's all hands-on activities. So it's all about kind of experiential learning and going on hikes, but also building things. And it's remarkable. This year's theme is space. <laughs> so we're thinking about this idea of spaceship Earth, but also um, what that means. What is space? Outer space and microscopic inner space. So we have a, a, a team of artists and scientists that are making a giant water droplet, which is sensory base for kids on the, the kind of spectrum. So they can literally kind of enjoy what it's like to be microscopic. So they get shrunk down at the beginning through this crazy device that they're building. And then they enter this giant water droplets. And then there's tardigrades and amoeba and other microscopic organisms inside to greet them. We have a real astronaut who's coming. You know, we've got an amazing group of folks coming in from all over the country and, and spending time here in our rural community. And so we're super excited about that. We also just regularly conduct these art and science and food and uh, environmental education programs. And, and we've been lucky enough now, largely through patronage, uh, to buy more land. So we're up to about 25 acres of nature reserve. And it's great. It's all old farmland that's being renatured. We're doing some really interesting projects with other art and science teams. We've had artists and residents that have come and made ephemeral sculptures out of like invasive species, removing some of the invasives and then creating these sculptural structures, which then decompose and, and help rebuild the topsoil. I'm working personally as an artist uh, with another artist named Newton Harrison, 
who's 91 years old. Newton is uh, one of the pioneers of what you would call ecological art. He was uh, an artist in residence in the 60s at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Um, he and his uh, wife um, formed the Harrison Studio in the 1970s, and they've always done these environmental projects. So Newton and I are, are collaborating with some soil scientists at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. Uh, studying the way that potentially this Cajun prairie uh, can sequester carbon. By 2000, by the year 2000, only about 100 acres of native Cajun prairie still existed. So there's been a real effort to bring back this endangered habitat, this endangered grouping of plants. And it's a special mix. It's not found anywhere else in the world. So this Cajun prairie habitat, we planted about two and a half acres of it. So Newton and I are asking the question, what is it about bringing, you know, Newton's very interested in kind of bringing the, the history of a place back as an art form. And I'm very interested in, in thinking about this ecosystem as a, as a kind of living sculpture that supports the biodiversity that would have been found here 300, 400, 500 years ago. And then we're also asking questions about how it can sequester carbon. We know that um, some studies in the Midwest are showing that prairie is a highly effective means of sequestering atmospheric carbon. So just over the next 10 years, we're monitoring the way that these prairie grasses work. And we're disturbing them in different ways. We're collaborating with some sheep. We're doing some burns on other ones. We're, we're just um, doing some disturbances to see how that affects grass or prairie species biodiversity but also how it affects the means in which they, how effectively they sequester carbon. So it's really kind of a 10 year art and science project. Newton says he's gonna be 101 before we see any results. That's okay. And it's also a great learning tool. You know, we can talk about um, carbon capture and again, offer like this possibility that look, you know, it's like if, if two folks can come down and build this eco campus, what can you do in your backyard? You know, what can you do with the resources you have? And that's, that's one of the underlying messages, really, is just to, to get folks to be informed and empowered that every action that we take every day has some kind of impact, whether it's a positive impact or a negative impact, all these little actions that we take, what we're doing in our backyard, what we're not doing, all of them have potential impacts. And some of them can be very, very positive. So we hope to kind of inspire people to do the same thing. It's the long view of time and it's the long arc of change. And I appreciate you keeping perspective on that. And, and, and also there's a whole lineage of people whose names we don't remember around these things. And I've done a lot of work in this and, and Newton Harrison is someone you made me aware of. Um, and and it's, it's a fantastic example and, and really inspiring. We've been drawing you out and your origins as a philosopher. Part of that is something that is a core part of each of us, and that's our relationship with hope. And for me, your life remodels this as a more muscular hope, which is distinctly different from this kind of blind, passive optimism that things will work out. And I'm curious how you keep that hope alive for yourself. I mean, we all face these dark moments of the soul, periods when, um, we face difficulty and we, we maybe face uncertainty or doubt. And I'm curious what you do in those moments. What are your practices to keep this hope alive for yourself? Oof, yeah, well, certainly, I mean, anybody, any biologist, <laughs> any, any human that's uh, looking at some of the predictions and realizing some of the complicated challenges we face have those down moments. Um, I, I typically go plant stuff. Um, I try to I try to just go back to to doing what I what I can. Um, but then I think uh, being at the atelier and and working in South Louisiana to um, as many challenges as as we face as coastal communities, um, there is a lot of hope too. Um, and, and even with the biodiversity, there's a, there's a paper, or there's a group that's been looking at the way that Southern flounder seem to be disappearing or have really disappeared or declined a lot 
in the Gulf states. And uh, so that's been a, a species of interest. And I bring this up because I was out last week and um, I was seeing with a, with a group, not scientists, but actually people from the cultural sector. And we caught dozens of baby Southern flounder in a saying that, of course we released them all, but it was so exciting. It was just great to see that they're there. And that's the kind of thing about being constantly inspired by the way that life wants to persist. Um, obviously we're, gonna have to adapt ourselves as a species, try to learn to be more sustainable, make the, the, the sacrifices and, and, and the migrations that we need to do to, to succeed and, and to survive. But life wants to persist and, and we can learn from that. We're, we're incredible. I mean, we were um, talking about uh, bees earlier before we started to record but it's this idea that we're a superorganism and we succeed through cooperation and collaboration. So the more that I think we focus as much as we can on, on working together and, and try to avoid um, competing so much and, and try to figure out ways that even as individuals, we can make positive differences in our community, whether that's doing science outreach to schools where the science standards are incredibly poor, volunteering to help do stuff like that, running for school board, running for office, becoming civically engaged in your community and having that kind of impact. Those are things that we can do. And, and I think many scientists are doing it. Many artists and, and environmental activists and educators are, are doing that. So we are, we're having, we are making positive differences. Of course, it's overwhelming to see the thing, the, how quickly things are changing, but we are working at it and, and species have been changed as a result. Coastal environments in some cases are, are returning. I mean, there's some diversions at play in Plaquemines Parish that are growing land for the first time in, in, in decades. So there's, there are, there's silver linings all over the place if we take the time to, to look at them and, and continue to, to create them. Um, we're, we're building out this generative narrative of what muscular hope is. And it's not one that is constantly optimistic or, or delightful. Uh, it, it comes with challenges and, and that's part, that's part of it. We talk a lot on this show and one of the themes of this, this season five that we're now launching with, with your episode is how do we build a more healthy relationality? And I think your point about the different ways we can increase civic engagement and make that part of what we do is essential to that. And I appreciate you making that point. Before we come to the, the final portion of the show, I, there's one final thing that I, I really wanna ask you about. And one of the, the themes of this coming season is going to be world building. It's gonna be imagining these futures that then allow us to move towards them, run full tilt towards them because we can then see them. And in a future where we adopt the systemic changes that you're trying to create, how would you today begin to build that world for us? What, what do you imagine that world looks like? Mm, well, I mean, I think we have to, we have to make sure that we look at future generations. I mean, thinking about the long-term of why conservation is so important, not just for other species, but our own, but really focusing on, on educating children in, in our nation, in our world, with not only a sense of they can do something, but that here are the tools that we're helping them with. You know, how can, how can education, how can science education art education, the humanities, why that's so important for their, for their future and for the sustainability of our, of our cultures, of our nation and of our world. So really focusing on, on helping to ensure that we take the time and, and energy to, to involve youth in, in programming and to give them a diverse background for education. So yeah, I, I like to focus a lot on, on, you know, not 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 ignoring our generations, uh, <laughs> of course, but just thinking through like, you know, how I think that's a, an important part of our responsibility is to make sure that that future generations um, have a much better science education than many of the the folks in in political power right now, and I think it's feasible. 
but it's it's also going to take individuals uh, such as you and I and, and lots of our listeners to literally go sort out a way to make that happen. And your work is replete with examples of how to go do this uh, in a participatory way. And I will certainly point people in the show notes to that work uh, for inspiration and for ideas and for getting involved as well. Uh, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. So I think this is a, a good point to move to the final portion of the show, which is just a lightning round. There's four quick questions and answers uh, to cover a few things to leave the audience with. Uh, so Brendan, are you ready for the lightning round? <laughs> sure, let's go. <laughs> All right. The first question is, what is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike anyone else? Is there a book that you have a special relationship to? Oh, there's so many, but Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, where he introduces the idea of the land ethic. Ah, Aldo Leopold, thank you. Excellent. I thought maybe you would uh, mention uh, E.O. Wilson there. Which I remember was an influence on you as well. <laughs> the future of life is a fantastic book. Um, yeah, E. Wilson's another favorite. Um, but yeah, I'm going to stick with Leopold. No, I love it. I love it. Thank you. The second question is: What is one passion outside of your own field that has most importantly helped set your trajectory? science um i guess i've gotten really my my wife is a is a culinary educator so uh, she does food education so she's really um inspired me to learn more about the way that food is an excellent way to educate about the idea of environmental sustainability and 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 looking at your body as an environment and ecosystem so i'm gonna say i'm gonna say culinary education very cool. What is making your heart sing right now? Is there something that we haven't maybe spoken about that's animating you? I guess uh, my garden. I'm really enjoying having a great garden this year. We're growing a lot of our own food and I'm, you know, still learning about that and I'm able to do it with my children and it's great. It's um, animating and fun and we're eating a ton of tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and and you know, it's all like uh, no pesticides and 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 using um, natural fertilizer from our rabbits. It's, it's really cool to learn about that process. My wife and I are doing the same thing here and, and it is rewarding and enjoyable. The final question is what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Plenty of interviews like this, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, there's so, so many, so many things that are utterly screwed up. You know, part of, part of the art process, part of the science process is 99 fails to get one thing right. So, so many experiments when it comes to art and science. I mean, for example, there's a, I'm looking at it in my studio right now. There's a series of oil paintings uh, where I've used crude oil to make portraits of some of these missing Gulf species but crude oil from Deepwater Horizon and the, the Taylor spill. But it took 10 years of failure to figure out the methodology to actually get oil to semi-dry on paper. So, you know, 99.9% failures to, to like finally figure out a methodology where I use a chemical dispersant and ethanol in layers to, to make these paintings, what are called the crude oil paintings. So that, that's a good one. I screwed up tons of those. Ah, interesting. Yeah, thank you. I'm, as a scientist and, and engineer myself, I'm certainly well-versed in, in trying a lot of things that don't work, um, but there's a lot of growth in that as well. So, Brandon, this has been fantastic, informative, illuminating, and insp inspirational, and I appreciate all the work you're doing in the world, and I appreciate you joining us here on Origins today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Likewise, and, uh, and thanks again. We'll be in touch. That sounds great. I want to invite everybody to come down and visit us here in South Louisiana. And uh, you're welcome to the atelier anytime.